Well, it has been a joy for me over the last, well, several months to be able to spend some time with both Zach Leach and Isaac Dye. Um, every Tuesday and every Thursday from about 8.30 in the morning till about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I get to hang out with these guys and talk about the Word of God. It has been a blessing to me. And um, Zach, I'm, I'm excited about what God is going to do in your life and uh, continue to pray for him. Um, I've invited him back in three years when he's done with uh, the MDiv that he's... Just, just kidding, by the way. But um, it's been great to have him here. Isaac is going gonna, is gonna to stay with us. And um, I'm, I'm excited about what, uh, what God will continue to do through his life in ministry as he's been making connections with several of you as he just finished his Masters of Divinity and as he'll be working with some of the passions and gifts that he has um, and kind of helping to lead out in some different areas. Um, lots, lots of exciting opportunities. He'll be preaching next week on Mother's Day. And so the ministry that he started uh, back in January is a ministry that we're hoping will continue to grow um, as God continues to work in his life and, and use him for his glory here at Maranatha. We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We've started that at the beginning of this year, and we're going to continue to work through this Gospel probably for the next uh, year or two um, as we're making our way and finding and discovering who God is and, and what God has to offer to us. We're in a section of, of Luke chapter 5 that will go through Luke chapter 10, and, and the prevailing theme is follow me, where Jesus issues this statement this clarion call, follow me. You heard it this morning in the scripture reading. It will continue as we work our way through this chapter and as we work our, our way through the next uh, several chapters in the gospel. But the question that should come to your mind is, if Jesus is calling us to, call, to follow him, who is Jesus? Is he worth following? Is he somebody that you should commit your life to? Is he someone who you should give your allegiance to? Is he worthy of your devotion? Is he worthy of your obedience? Is he worthy of your everything? And this morning, I, I want us to, to look at Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17 to the end of the chapter. And, and there's at least seven reasons in our chapter, in our passage this morning, of why you should follow Jesus. But who was Jesus? If you were to describe his ministry, if you were to summarize his approach to people, the way that he interacted with, with sinners, the way he interacted with the, the people in the first century, what, what word would you use? Would you use the word compassion? Would you use the word love? Would you use the word tenderness? Maybe the word patience? This enduring heart and spirit of Jesus to serve and not to be served? To give his life a ransom for many? Those should be some of the descriptions that you would use of Jesus. But beginning this morning and, and, and moving our way to the end of this gospel... One thing I want you to understand is that Jesus, while compassionate, was also combative, aggressive, shocking, 
polarizing, criticizing, condemning, judging. Because Jesus cared about the hearts and souls of those who listened to the message of truth. And as John will say at the beginning of his gospel, he was a man who was full of grace and truth. So make no mistake, Jesus Jesus was polarizing in his statements. And he did that by design so that he could call the counterfeit to true repentance. And so this morning, as we look at the life of Jesus, that's what we'll begin to see. Out on the Welcome Center, there's a book I would encourage you to get, uh, where John MacArthur, in his book, The Jesus You Can't Ignore, begins to describe this maybe unfamiliar Jesus. Uh, This Jesus who was aggressive in his truth claims, and oftentimes makes the first step, often is the one who is, is taking the first thrust, as it were, in describing truth, in creating conflict in a way that will call people to, to who he really is. There's a few copies left. I think it's about 12 to $15 on Amazon, but you can get it in the back for, for 10 bucks, and you can get it and take it home with you. Most of those copies are already gone, so um, rush out and grab one when you, or buy one on Amazon. You can get it for, I think, $8 if you like the, the electronic version. Um, there is, there is a, a summary that I appreciate from C.H. Spurgeon. He says this, Brethren, the Savior's character has all goodness, in all perfection. He is full of grace in truth. Some men nowadays talk of him as if he were simply incarnate benevolence, incarnate compassion and love. But it is not so. No lips ever spoke with such thundering indignation against sin as the lips of Messiah. He is like a refiner's fire. His fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor. While in tenderness he prays for his tempted disciple that his faith may not fail, yet with awful sternness he winnows the heap and drives away the chaff into unquenchable fire. This is the Jesus who is full of grace and truth, that Jesus will begin to see again this morning maybe the, the corollary uh, uh, aspect of who Jesus is, uh, Jesus who will be confrontational and aggressive in his truth claims. Last week we began chapter 5. There were two main headings that we looked at, and we saw that Jesus is a, is a, is a, is a man who speaks the word of God. He speaks in a way that bears fruit, he, he speaks in a way that cleanses the leper. And this is really good news for us who are followers of Jesus because Jesus will not only qualify you for ministry by cleansing you for ministry, but he, through his word and through the power of his Holy Spirit, will bear fruit in your life. As a follower of Jesus, you will enjoy the benefits of all that Jesus will have to give through his word and through his spirit. 
And as we make our way into the the rest of chapter 5, there are three more main headings. But I want you to recognize before we dive in too deep that these headings are connected together. These events of Christ's life from verses 17 to the end of the chapter, I think are stitched together, and we'll see that grammatically in several ways. Briefly, I want you to notice how the events in this narrative are related to one another. In verse 17, we'll see that Jesus, as it says, is on one of those days as he was teaching. This is kind of establishing for us the context of this narrative, and everything that follows will be subordinate to this context. In verse 27, after this he went out. Verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast. In verse 33, and they said to him, each of these new narratives are are helping to continue the the context that was established in verse 17. But also notice the same target audience. The target audience that, that, that stands out in verse 17, as he was teaching, it says, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They're going to be this continuing presence throughout the narrative from verses 17 to the end of the chapter. We'll see them again in the next main section in verse 30. It says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. And then in verse 33, when the question about fasting comes up, the, the fasting that is happening with the Pharisees and the scribes are the target audience that Jesus will address in helping to understand what the right response of a true follower of God should look like. Finally, Notice the connecting words that bind this narrative together. We're going to see the the conjunction and that kind of laces its way through this narrative. Verse 17, on one occasion. Verse 8, and behold. Verse 20, and when he saw. Verse 25, and immediately he rose up. And 26, and amazement seized them all. And on it goes. As the narrative continues, these conjunctions help to bind this narrative together. Now, I, I state this because... Preaching, in in, in my estimation, is more than just sharing information. Preaching is is meant to inform you how to do this for yourself. And and so my goal is to to give you the toolkit, as it were, so that you can can do this work on your own. And you can access the scriptures and draw out the truth that will be beneficial to you. So let's, let's make our way, beginning in verse 17. And let's begin to see the seven reasons why you should follow Jesus. The seven reasons why you should follow Jesus. Verse 17 says this. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. These Pharisees, these scribes, who had come from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, had seen the ongoing ministry of Jesus in the various places in which they were. They may have observed his baptism. Certainly they saw his miracles both in Galilee and and Jerusalem. They heard his teaching. They saw his power. They recognized the, the growing crowds and the response of the people. They saw healings and the the power of Christ to cast out demons. They were those who were best positioned to respond in the right way. But as we're going to see, 
these Pharisees did not come with a heart that was ready. They came with a heart that was fixed on criticism, on stockpiling accusation. Maybe even in this room, or maybe on the live stream. There are those of you, even in this room, maybe you've been coming to church for a very long time. Maybe, like the Pharisees, you are in a place of, of seeing your own life as measuring up to the standard. These Pharisees, having known the law, having practiced and observed the, the Mosaic law and traditions, ha had been exposed to the temple, had known all of the obligations of the law, had known God from his word, should have been best positioned to respond to Christ in the right way. And yet we're going to see their hearts are resistant. They did not choose to follow after Jesus. And the greatest reason why they should have followed him is what we see first. They should have followed Jesus because Jesus can forgive your sins. Perhaps there's no greater reason to follow Jesus than this. Every one of us in this room has brokenness, has areas that are out of step with the perfection and holiness of God. As Paul will write in Romans chapter 3, 23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us in this room have defect, corruption, pollution. We're out of step with glory. And so we need someone, something to resolve this issue in our life. And Jesus has come to forgive sins. He has come to forgive sins. Notice verse 18. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. And finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up onto the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he, speaking of Jesus, saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. These five men the four friends and the man on the, on the mat were there and, and Jesus recognized something significant about them. There was faith in their hearts. There was a believing in their hearts, a believing that Jesus was at least a representative, representative of God and had power to heal. That power was coming from God to do this. Notice verse 17, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Luke notes that the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to perform this healing on this day. And we've seen the, the continuation, this theme that, is, that has come from the very beginning of the, the gospel of Luke to call attention to something that was quite distinct, quite different about Jesus, that Jesus was marked out as one who was from God, who had the power of God, who could exercise that power and authority at command, at will. Here was the power again, power to heal. And Jesus sees this man being lowered from the roof. He recognizes his faith in the faith of his friends. And he says, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. But forgiveness wasn't supposed to happen here. At least not in a first century Jewish kind of thinking. 
It, it never happened in a house. It was supposed to happen in the right way. It was supposed to happen with priests and altars and sacrifices and temples and prayers. But here, this man will experience what he had no idea was possible, forgiveness from God. Notice this man does not come expecting forgiveness, but he gets it. He has said nothing. He has brought nothing. He has done nothing. And yet Jesus forgives this man to establish that forgiveness is resident within Christ alone. That he alone can forgive sins. That he alone has authority to forgive. And that's really good news. That's really good news for every one of us in, in this room. That Jesus has authority to forgive. So if there's any brokenness in your heart, if there is anything that is wayward, if there's anything that is out of line, Jesus can bring forgiveness and cleansing. I love how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, where he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That God knows your sin and he can rightly judge you as one who has stepped out of line, as one who has broken his law, as one who is hostile to his commands, hostile towards him, an enemy of God. But I love Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ has power to forgive. He can forgive you in a moment, instantaneously. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to wipe the slate clean, to transfer on us the perfection of Christ so that we will not be condemned. Those who are in Christ are not condemned because of faith in Christ and the work of Christ to accomplish for us what you could not accomplish for yourself. <laughs> Jesus can forgive sins. That's the first and maybe the best reason to follow him. But Jesus continues to, to add new evidence and new reasons in this context, in this passage, to, to draw these Pharisees, to draw those listeners to himself, to follow, to commit themselves to him. The next is that Jesus knows your secret thoughts. We see that in verses 21 to 22. Jesus knows your secret thoughts. Verse 21 says, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? The Pharisees and the scribes had heard about Jesus. They had heard his teaching. They had seen his miracles. They perhaps had even been acquainted with his, his ministry in Jerusalem, in Galilee, wherever Jesus went. And yet, while they should have been in the best place to receive the word of Christ, they're critical. They grumble. They complain. But Jesus understands and sees their heart. The, the correlating stories in the Gospel of Matthew says, and at once some of the scribes said within themselves. Mark 
expounds on that and says, And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. In their minds, they believe him to be guilty of blasphemy. Blasphemy, by the way, was the most heinous crime a Jew could commit. Aligning yourself with God. Assuming that you had the same characteristics, the same features of God himself. And Jesus, in this moment, was either God or he was a blasphemer. And the Pharisees knew it. And Jesus perceived their thoughts. Jesus knew what was going on inside their minds. Jesus read the very words on their heart and he rebukes them, which should have been another confirmation of the fact that he was, in fact, the God who knows their hearts. In perceiving, he knew them. He understood them. And he knew his, that, that their thoughts were not hidden from him. But only God can know the heart. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10 states that. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. And Jesus, as God, knew the hearts of these Pharisees and scribes. He asks them, why do you question in your hearts? He knew exactly what was going on. The beauty of this, the beauty of the fact that Jesus knew their hearts and yet continued to draw them to himself, continued to call them to faith, is good news for every one of us in this room. Every one of us who has a secret, every one of us who has that secret sin or secret thing going on in your life that you don't want anybody to know, The beauty of this is that since nothing is hidden from Christ, there is nothing he's going to discover that he doesn't already know. And since he doesn't, uh, since nothing is hidden from his sight, and he still is able to call you to himself and cleanse you from sin, there is nothing that puts you at a distance from him that he hasn't already paid for. There's nothing you're going to come out with There's no secret issue that he doesn't know in your life that he isn't already aware of. There's nothing that's going to disrupt the potential for fellowship with him. Come clean. Follow Christ. Recognize that because he knows your secret thoughts, your secret heart, and he addresses that already, he's already paid for that, he continues to beckon you to come to him. Reason number three, that Jesus is the Son of Man. We see that in verses 23 and 24. Jesus is the Son of Man. Notice it says, Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin? He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus will address himself in this narrative and throughout the Gospels on more than 80 occasions as the Son of Man. Now, on the surface, we think, well, Son of Man, no big deal. There's, yeah, he's a man just like anybody else. But Jesus is using this phrase and drawing a direct correlation with what we find from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Jesus, in claiming to be the son of man is stating emphatically that he in fact is the son of God and now binding everything together 
his power to forgive sin, and what we'll see in just a moment, his ability to heal this man's paralysis is based upon his identity as the Son of Man. And so if he, in fact, is the Son of Man and can heal this paralyzed individual, then he also has the authority to forgive and thus is God. All of it is bound together. Daniel, in his vision, says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of the heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Wow, talk about a bold statement. Jesus says, I, in fact, am God. I am the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I am the one who has all dominion and all authority and every nation, tribe, and language will bow to me. I am that one. I am the Son of Man. Jesus makes this bold confession. And he makes this bold confession in a very risky way, some might consider, but not risky for Jesus because he, in fact, was the Son of Man and the Son of God. Jesus uses this phrase consistently of himself to designate himself as the one who has been promised from the beginning. Jesus creates this public conflict that is so electrifying that it would have made everyone in the room gasp. You've ever been in a situation where you could t- cut the tension with a knife? This is the situation that Jesus is creating with these words. I am God, he states, with emphasis and boldness and clarity. Reason number four, Jesus has power to heal. We see that in verses 23 to 26. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. The answer to the Lord's question, that it would have been easier to say to the paralytic that his sins were forgiven, is would have been actually very easy to say because it can't be confirmed or denied. But on the other hand, it would be obvious to all whether or not he actually was able to heal this man. And Jesus, in binding all of these things together, will make a bold statement that he, in fact, was the person he laid claim to. Luke understands that if God granted Jesus' power to work this miracle then God himself supported Jesus' claim that he can forgive sins. If Jesus came from God and the power of God was on Jesus to work healing ministry and Jesus was in fact able to forgive sins, then Jesus, as a representative of God, as God himself, son of man, would be able to say to this man, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. When it comes to who he is, Jesus has, in effect, raised the stakes by closing down the options. He is either God or he is a blasphemer. And we find what happens next in verse 
25 and 26. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God because he understood how this miracle came about. He understood the power of God was at work in his life to heal his body. He goes away glorifying God in all of those who were there. Amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. God is in the business of healing. Not only in healing paralyzed individuals, but especially in healing sin-sick souls. That's the good news that we find. Psalm 103, verses 2 to 4 says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and mercy. Well, what kind of diseases is he referring to? Isaiah 53 will help us understand some more about the kinds of diseases and healing that the psalmist has in mind when he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. God desires to heal your broken heart. He desires to mend the sinful life that is out of sync with a holy God. He desires to fill the gap, to draw you in, to create holiness and perfection in you that is possible because of the perfection of Jesus Christ, to bridge the gap that you could not bridge for yourself. Jesus, in fact, is able to heal to the greatest way possible. Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Do you need healing this morning? Do you need forgiveness that only God can offer? Do you need the, the brokenness of your life to be repaired? Run to Jesus. He alone is able to provide the healing that you need. The fifth reason is found in verses 27 to 32. Try to pick up the pace so we can finish. Jesus demands that you follow him. Why follow Jesus? Because he demands it. The God who is over all, the God of dominion and power and authority who sits on the throne has demanded and called for your allegiance, for your obedience, for you to follow him. So why should you follow him? Because God, the Lord of the hosts, has declared it. We find in verses 22 to 27 to 32, after this, meaning after this healing, Jesus is moving in, uh, in, in this area around this house. He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in all his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. Luke, or Levi, excuse me. Levi, as a tax collector, was the most despised Jew in all of Israel. Levi, who was considered a traitor of the highest degree. 
Somebody who had turned their back on the nation of Israel and had sold out in every way to the Roman Empire, to the oppressor, to the aggressor, to the one who is taking advantage of a, of a little guy. And that while God had made promises to Abraham to establish them as a people, that Levi as a tax collector was actually coming against God and helping to hold the promise at bay by, by enabling and helping the aggressor, the oppressor. That's the kind of guy that Levi was. And so the audacity of Christ to walk by this hated individual and to ask him to join his team was unthinkable. And so as we find again in verse uh, 30, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now the hostility that had been in their hearts is coming to the surface. There's no point in keeping it concealed. And so they grumble openly this time and Jesus confronts them again. Jesus comes with guns loaded. Jesus wants them to understand what true discipleship and true religion requires. It requires following him. It requires coming to terms with who you are. Notice verses 31 and 32. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the Pharisees thought they were well. The Pharisees thought they, religion, they were religious. They thought they had all of the standards buckled down, that they were meeting all the conditions of the Mosaic law. They were the ones who were standing head and shoulders above the people. They were the ones who had it all together in their minds. And Jesus cannot help them because they're not looking for a savior. They will be saving themselves in their own minds. Jesus can only come to call sinners to repentance. It requires that we come to a place of recognizing our own dysfunction. It requires that we come to a place of recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy, as we said several weeks ago. That we are, in fact, those who are captive, those who are blind, those who are oppressed by sin. And when we come to a place of recognizing who we really are and where the help comes from, we can rest and hope in God and find help in a Savior. Isaiah 30, 15 puts it this way. Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance, in rest is your salvation. In quietness, in trust is your strength. It's totally countercultural. It's counterintuitive that in resting, in waiting, in repentance, in trust, that's where true deliverance and strength comes from because it comes from God who alone is able to step in and overcome our deficiency with his supreme sufficiency. Trust in God. The final two points kind of flow together in this narrative of the bridegroom, in this narrative of the of a new cloth and new wine. We find here that Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the one who is worthy of celebration. Jesus is the one who came to invite his disciples to enjoy the benefits of fellowship and community that are now possible because of all that Jesus has made available to them through himself. We also find 
in verses 36 to 39 that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. As he works his way through and illustrating through two parables, the parable of the, of the uh, new clothing and old patches and new wine and old wineskins, it's all just a, a metaphor to help us understand that Jesus came to establish something new something completely different, something that, that wasn't meant to, to pull and to, to fix and to patch up an old system and somehow make it work and make it effective and make it beneficial, but to come and bring something entirely new and that Jesus is the way. As we find in John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the upper room before he's about to die. And he says this to them, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Do you know Jesus this morning? Because Jesus is worth following. Jesus alone is able to forgive you of your sin. Jesus, in knowing your secret thoughts, has made a way. Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God, who's able to heal, is able with his authority, the word of his authority, to make well immediately, to confirm the fact that he, in fact, is God and able to save to the uttermost. Have you come to a place today of committing and, and giving your allegiance to him because he demands it? He's worthy of it. He deserves your worship, your devotion, your obedience today. And those of us who have placed our faith in Christ now are in a waiting period of yearning and waiting for the bridegroom to return. The celebration to continue as Jesus is going to come and take his bride. Will you be one of those who enjoy the benefits of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross and through his resurrection? Have you placed your faith in him? I trust you have. And if you haven't, at the end of the service, I would love to lead you to what a relationship with Jesus looks like and talk with you more about the special gift that Christ has given to us through his son, Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we praise you for all that you have come to do. Thank you that you are worthy of our following. You as son of man and son of God have the authority and power to command your people. And I pray this morning that if there's any of those who do not know Jesus, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would work in their hearts to draw them to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you this week.